Thank you. All right, good morning. Okay, so thank you just on behalf of Ozark letting us uh, be here with you. It really is um, a privilege. Thank you for sending us students as well. All of them are good except for one, and he's got red hair and sitting on the front row. No, he's fantastic. Like, yeah, he's awesome. Does a great job. He pays attention in class. You got an A right now, right? I don't know if you do or not, but I hope so. Yeah. Doing, he, Dad said he better. No, but seriously, thank you for uh, sending us great students from this church. Um, Justin and I have been trying to plan coming out here for some time now. And if you're interested in learning anything else about the school, I'll be out by the booth later on. So will a couple of our students, Jillian and Zoe, will be out there. Frontline will, will make their way there as well. And we'd love to chat with you. We're also starting up, we, well, we have full um, online degrees, and we're starting a master's program that will launch on uh, the fall of 22, so this coming fall. So if you're interested in any of that, we would love to chat with you. Now, how many of you have ever been invited somewhere but not necessarily wanted there? But it, whether it's, you know, you were invited to a party for your spouse's work, and it's like, okay, I'm invited here, but you feel kind of out of place. They don't really care that you're there. You're just, you're just there. Or sometimes, you know, you might be invited to join a club or a team, but you're just not all that good at the sport or the activity that they're doing. So you're invited, but not necessarily wanted. Jesus understands this. Open up to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 and verse 36. Luke 7, 36. While you're getting there, um, there was this uh, kid. I, I grew up not as a Christian until I got into high school age, uh, right around eighth grade or so, going into, the, going into high school. And my, I was in a bad school district, and after we became Christians, my parents put me in a private school, a uh, rich, snotty private school that I did not fit in very well. Um, I wish I could say I was grateful that they pulled me out of a bad school and put me into a good one. I, I was just kind of a loner didn't talk with a whole lot of people. I wasn't involved with sports or activities. I just kept to myself. And so when we roll around then to, I was there for three years or two years, starting then my junior year, my first class was gym, my junior year. So coach said on the first day, hey, we're going to run the mile. I do not run. Uh, I have a rebellious streak. And if people tell me what to do, I do the exact opposite. So I'm a track walker. Where are my track walkers at? You know what I'm talking about. Where, who Self-confessed track walkers. Uh, and so it was four laps around the track. It was a beautiful August day. I was just going to stroll by myself and be perfectly content until who runs, who, or who comes right up next to me would be a, a little guy, freshman student. So I'm a junior. He's a freshman. Matt Avery. Uh, Matt instantly wanted to be my friend because we were both track walkers. Matt struggled with his weight. Um, I don't say that putting him down whatsoever. It was something that, that bothered him. Uh, but he wasn't going to be running the mile at all. And, and so we were walking together. Matt would not shut up. I don't know if you have anybody like this in your life, but my goodness, like he is just jabbering on and on about his brother and his sister and his three dogs and two cats and his dead hamster. And then he's telling me what he wants for Christmas, like I'm Santa Claus. And I have this, this like decision that I have to make. I could either keep walking with Matt, who is getting closer and closer and inviting himself into my life. And I don't necessarily want that, or I can run. <laughs> I didn't want that either, so I walked with Matt. And by the time we were done, I had a new best friend who invited himself into my life, and I did not want him in my life whatsoever. After that class, he went and he moved two of his classes to match mine. I don't know how he did that, but he, but he did. Moved his, uh, his locker closer to my locker and then changed to where we had the same lunch period. 
And I wish that I could, this story had this great happy ending where he became my best friend and I invite him out here and, you know, led him to Jesus or something like that. It just wasn't that way. I was too selfish, self-centered, and I just didn't care about him. I never picked on him, never bothered him, but if he wasn't around, I didn't care. If he sat with me at lunch, he would just talk and he wouldn't shut up and I'd just go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then when I was done eating, I would just get up and he'd just kind of scurry and follow me around. He'd just tag along with me at school and I just ignored him most of the time. I, I, I didn't like him. I didn't care. I didn't want a friend. It, it, it's, and I especially didn't want him as a friend. And so this is my, Matt who invited himself into my life, but he wasn't wanted. And Jesus, in, you got your Bibles open? Luke chapter 7, verse 36, Jesus is invited to a party. And I think I can prove to you that he was invited, but not necessarily wanted by some of the things that, that come up in the text. And so we're going to meet three characters in the story. The first one is Simon. Simon is the one that's throwing the dinner party. He's inviting people over to his house. He's a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees in that day, yes, they're the religious leaders, but they're not quite like your pastors here uh, at the church. That, that they, were, they had this, this hoity-toity clout to them. Uh, they, they, had this, uh, they, they were better than everybody else. They were the elite. Uh, they, they liked their popularity. They liked their money. They liked to rub elbows with other important people in the community. And so if Simon is throwing a party, there is no way that he's inviting fishermen and butchers and bakers and candlestick makers. He's not inviting people from the lower class. He's going to invite other rich, elite people to rub elbows with. But with this party, he decides to invite Jesus. Jesus, now he's king of kings, lord of lords, like he owns everything. But in Jesus, earthly Jesus, just born of Mary, simple woman, girl, Joseph the carpenter, he hangs out with fishermen. Like Jesus is kind of a nobody except for he teaches with one who has authority. He's done some miracles. This story in Luke 7 takes place early in his ministry. He's done some miracles and people are talking about is Jesus the Messiah. And so if, G if Simon doesn't invite Jesus to the party, everybody's going to be talking about Jesus in this small town. Where's Jesus? What do you think of Jesus? Do you think he's the Messiah? What about his miracles? What about his teaching? He might as well just invite Jesus to the party. So Jesus rolls up to the party, and every time you would go into somebody's house in that day, there would be a 12-year-old boy that was there outside the dinner party. What do you think that 12-year-old boy's job was, standing on the outside of the door? Wash feet. Okay, I don't know who said it, but you have an A in Bible college. Congratulations, okay? Uh, yeah, he's there to wash feet. And so it's a most humble job uh, that somebody can do. Of course, today, like if you walked into somebody's house and you're standing in the foyer and you notice that there's shoes that are kicked off there in the foyer, that means that they probably have new carpet or they just don't want you uh, tracking in whatever was outside on their carpet. So you would kick your shoes off. It's the same concept. They have dusty Palestine roads that who knows what they stepped in so they would wash their feet before going into the house. They would have a servant do that. Now, with, with the case of Jesus coming into this house, there was no 12-year-old boy that was there. Now, he could have been called off to some other responsibilities. That wouldn't be uncommon. And so people coming to this party would have their own servants wash their feet for them. Or in Jesus's case, there would just be water, which is the baseline hospitality. It's the lowest form of hospitality in this culture um, would be to just leave the water there so that Jesus could wash his own feet. But the idea that comes across in the text is that there was no water for his feet that was given. It's almost like Simon knew 
when Jesus was going to be getting there and pulled the water away. It's like Simon snubbed the Savior. He was invited but not wanted. So Jesus doesn't wash his feet and goes into the house. Now, as he goes into the house, it's common for the host of the house would greet every person with a kiss. Uh, We know that there's, uh, at a Bible college, you know, everybody likes to quote from Romans chapter 16, greet one another with a holy kiss whenever they find a girl that they want to date or something. It's like, no, using that totally out of context, but go for it, buddy. Like, give it a try. Yeah, get rejected. It's all right. Uh, So, but yeah. I grew up, uh, my grandma is Sicilian, she's Italian, um, and, and she, she has all the Italian culture, and so it, it, was, it was not uncommon that you would just walk in and she would kiss everybody on the lips, and I'd have aunts that would do this as well, uh, and, and it's, it's, it was weird to me, like we didn't do that on my dad's side of the family, but on my mom's side, like that's just the way we all rolled, like it was not weird at all. I met my wife when I was in the eighth grade and we started going to church um, and, and I fell in love with her instantly and, and just, I've just stayed with her ever since. And she came over to our house for a party and I didn't warn her about my grandma. My wife's kind of a touch me not and my grandma grabbed her by her blonde hair and just pulled her in and just smacked one right on her lips and she's just like, what in the world? And I'm like, grandma, I haven't kissed her on the lips and you already have. Like, <laughs> like this is... Like, <laughs> And her Italian culture is not much different than this culture here, the Jewish culture in Jesus' day. It was just saying, you're part of the family. Our house is open. Like, I'm the host, yes, but you're now family. You make yourself comfortable. You're one of us. And so Jesus had no water for his feet. Simon's kissing his other guests on the cheek or on the lips or however it worked. And they're all feeling welcome. But he, it's like he sees Jesus and just doesn't give, it, give him a kiss. And then it says in the text that he got no oil for his head. Now, again, if I walked over to your house and you invited me over for dinner and instead of putting Crisco in a pot or whatever, you're pouring Crisco over my head, I'm wondering, am I going to eat with you or are you going to eat me? Like, what kind of weird place is Enid, Oklahoma? I don't know. Like, it's a strange custom to put oil on the head today. That would be like, that's kind of weird. But in Jesus's day, it was just a sign of the most revered guest in the room. It's actually a sign of royalty. Samuel of the Old Testament anointed King Saul and anointed King David with oil on the head. The term Messiah actually means the anointed one. There's royalty that comes along with this. And so Jesus, being king of kings, lord of lords, should be the most honored guest in the room of all the people that were invited. But he got no water for his feet, no kiss, and no no oil for his head, and therefore probably did not get a prominent seat of honor at the table as well, which it would be as close to the host as possible is your most honored guest that's there. And Jesus got none of that. Simon is snubbing the Savior. People are kind of ignoring him in the house. I'm sure that they're having conversations and that there's some people that are excited that he's there, but, but really Jesus is kind of being left alone, and this is unusual for him. Because when he's on the outside of the house, everybody's crowding around him. They're clamoring to try and give for him, which brings us to our next person that we see in the text. So we have Simon, the Pharisee. We have Jesus, the Messiah. And who's the third person? What's her name? A woman. She's unnamed. Some people think this is Mary Magdalene. I I think those are two different accounts, that there's a similar account about that. But really, she doesn't have a name. The only thing that she has, according to Luke, is a reputation. She's called a sinful woman. 
Now, you don't get the title of sinful woman because you continually steal clothes out of your sister's closet. Although your sister may say that about you. You don't get that from cheating on a test. You get that kind of reputation because you sleep around. She's probably a prostitute. She's at least very loose with her morals, and she is definitely not welcomed at that party. She is not an elite person that is invited. And yet on the outside of the house, I wonder if this woman ever tried to get near Jesus. And people are crowding around him. I mean, you remember there was, uh, you know, Jesus is walking to somebody's house and everybody's crowding around him and a woman comes up and touches the hem of his garment and Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And his disciples act like he's crazy. He's going, what do you mean who touched you? Everybody is clamoring and crowding around you. Everybody's touching you. And, And so trying to get to Jesus on the outside of the house is a difficult task to do. But I picture her walking up to this house, knowing that Jesus is in there, looking in the window, seeing him reclined at a table sitting there all by himself and maybe a few people talking to him and so she seizes her opportunity to do what nobody is supposed to do in this culture especially a woman of this caliber of this degree like she is not supposed to come in that house but can you picture her throwing the door open and it's just silence if there's music playing it stops if there's a group of women over here that are that are chattering together they quit talking and they just start staring in judgment using choice words for who is this I'm sure she didn't come in in her party clothes, probably in her prostitute clothes. There's a group of men that maybe are standing over here and they start getting nervous. Because if this is the rich and the elite of the town, who can afford a prostitute if she indeed is one? I wonder if their minds are going to, is she going to spill a secret? Why is she here? Now, Jesus, it says, is reclined at a table. Now, we sit at tables like this. They would lean their elbows on cushions, and they would put their feet out this way, and the table would be here so they could get as many people around the table as possible. You'd lean on your elbow, and you would eat the food off of a, off of a low base table like that. And so this woman walks up, and it says that she comes up behind Jesus, and she begins to weep. That term for weep is not just like a, a holding back a sniffle or two at a, at a sad movie. It, 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 the term is actually she rains tears off of her face. Like it, it is uncontrollable weak, or, uh, weeping that she just she can't control it. And so her tears are just falling all over Jesus' feet as she stands behind him. Her knees buckle and, and she bends down and she's just weeping and weeping and weeping and sobbing. It's very uncomfortable for everybody in the room. What in the world is going on? She lets down her hair, and just pause there for a second. When a woman of this caliber, with this reputation, is letting down her hair in front of a man, it's almost this invitation for intimacy. Now, we would never think of such a thing of our Lord. We know that, but everybody in the room is instantly thinking scandal. Here's this man that claims to be the Messiah doing miracles from God, has followers, claims to be a rabbi. People call him that. And now this woman is weeping, and she lets down her hair? She begins to wipe up her tears. <laughs> They're too filthy for Jesus' feet. She, she can't help herself. She begins to kiss Jesus' feet. Again, this is weird and uncomfortable for us. But it's intimate worship. I wonder what's filthier, this woman or Jesus' unwashed feet? It's filth upon filth. It's beauty upon beauty. It's intimacy and worship that I bet you, even right now, man or woman, 
boy or girl in here, I bet you long for that kind of intimacy with Jesus. Just to be able to confess without words. Lay it all out there. Even in front of a bunch of people. We we don't even want people in church seeing us raise our hands. And yet, here she is in front of all of these powerful people. Laying out every sin and doesn't even say a word. Everybody knows. She pulls out this this jar of perfume, and and they didn't have spray bottles of perfume or or corks or anything. They they would have to carefully break open the the top of the jar uh, to dab a little bit of of it on. And the very perfume that she would probably use to try and attract men, she now pours out on the Son of Man, the Son of God, on his feet. Can you picture her even wiping that up and rubbing that into his feet? And it's this fragrant offering as she's giving this up to him, and, and it's filled the room and finally Simon can't take any more of it and he just thinks to himself because now his entire party is ruined what was going to be a nice dinner and he did the nice thing of inviting Jesus even though he didn't want him there is now ruined by this woman and this godly display that she has right here and so he just thinks to himself if this man truly were a prophet he would know what kind of woman that this is touching him that she is a sinner now with his thoughts he's not just calling out this woman he's also calling out Jesus because he's looking for a way to just kind of trap him to prove that he's not really who he says he is because that's just what most of the Pharisees did in Jesus' day. So not only, is he, not only is he calling this woman a filthy tramp, but he's saying that Jesus isn't powerful enough to know what kind of woman this is touching him, that she is dirty, rotten, and filthy. She is a sinner. And finally, Jesus speaks up. And he says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, young people in here, have you ever gotten in trouble with your parents because of sarcasm? <laughs> the parents are laughing right now, telling me the answer to that is yes, as if they were never sarcastic with their parents. Judge not, lest you be judged. Ha ha, parents. Yeah, I, I had a mouth that my mama would smack every now and then. Any of you ever been there before? Ooh, my wife used to use soap on my youngest boy, Caleb. And then she figured out, like, I might be actually poisoning him because she had to wash his mouth out so much. So she started using vinegar. She'd just dab her finger in vinegar and shove it in his mouth. I'm like, yikes. Simon needed a little bit of soap or vinegar because while I can't necessarily prove it because we can't hear tone of voice or body language, I think he's being so sarcastic right now. Jesus says, Simon, I have something to tell you. He's thought these thoughts about this woman and about Jesus. And he goes, oh, tell me, teacher. Oh, oh, tell me, because I'm a Pharisee among Pharisees. I'm throwing this party. I'm hosting this party. I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I have status and clout. And who are you, this 30-something-year-old rabbi with a bunch of rabble that follow you, fishermen and prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors, and you've got this woman that's pawing at your feet, and you're going to teach me something. Oh, please tell me, teacher. Ooh, he needs a little soap. He goes, I just have a story. Jesus and his stories. He goes, it's about a moneylender, a banker. And, and the banker had two people that came in and borrowed money from him. The, the first person came in and borrowed 500 denarii. A denarius was a day's wage. They, they would get paid by the day. And, and so when Jesus says somebody came in and borrowed 500 denarii, about a year and a half's wages, there, there was probably an audible laugh amongst the people that were there listening to him because there was nobody, no banker, no money lender had that amount of money to lend in Jesus' day. Like, it's just unheard of. 
to take that much money. And so everybody just kind of chuckles. And Jesus says, oh, don't, don't worry about it. But there was another person that came in who borrowed 50 denarii. That's a, still a huge loan, but a little bit more realistic, about a month and a half's wages. And, and so both of these people came in to get their loan. They went out, they conducted their business, and both of them lost all of the money and had no means to pay it back. And I don't know what it's like here in Oklahoma whenever you take out a mortgage or a car loan or a credit card or something, but if you can't pay, pay it back, they, of course, say, no problem. It, it, just, just don't even worry about your debt. You can just live in your house for free. Is that what the banks say around here? No, not at all. And they didn't say it back in Jesus' day either. But with Jesus' story, it has a plot twist. You see, because the way it's supposed to go, both guys come in and beg for mercy because they can't pay back this money. And the way, the way that culturally it went is that the, the man would be thrown in jail, the, the banker could seize all of his possessions to try and calculate out how much this is worth and take some of that. And if there's still debt that remains left over, then you would take his wife and his children into indentured servanthood, into slavery until they worked off the debt, and then he could be released from jail. But Jesus flips the script and he says that the moneylender forgave both debts the 50 denarii and the 500 denarii, and then Jesus takes that, that information and everybody's going, what? Nobody does that? Of course they don't do that. But Jesus then takes it and says, Simon, based on my story, who's going to love the moneylender more? More sarcasm, I think. I suppose the one who has the greater debt. I suppose the one who, uh, he knows the answer. But Pharisees, they love their deep theology. They love their Bible riddles. They love the challenges and the debate and stuff. And so Jesus tells the stupid, simple story with a stupid, simple answer. And he says, well, I suppose the one who had the greater debt, why are you wasting my time while this woman is still pawing at your feet? And he goes, you've judged correctly, Simon. And look at verse 44. I think it's one of the critical texts that are in here. Look at verse 44. It says, you've judged correctly, Jesus says. And then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon. So who's he looking at? Look at verse 44. What's it say? Who's he looking at? The woman. But who's he talking to? Simon. This is a sign of disrespect. To turn your back away from your host and a Pharisee of this, you know, of this caliber to turn your back on Simon and to look at this woman. Can you picture Jesus looking at her, whether she's standing at this point or he lifts her up and looks her in the eyes instead of looking up and down her body like other men have done. And he looks at her with wholeness and genuineness and love and forgiveness in his heart. And he says, do you see this woman, Simon? And he's talking to her. Well, he's talking to him, but... He's speaking to her. Do you see this woman? Of course he sees this woman. Everybody's been staring at this woman at this point. Do you see this woman? You gave me absolutely no water for my feet, yet she hasn't stopped wetting my feet with her tears since the moment that I walked in. You gave me no kiss on the cheek. She hasn't stopped kissing me. You gave me no oil for my head. Look at what she's poured out on me. She gave me absolutely everything. You gave me nothing. Those who love little are going to be forgiven little. Those who are forgiven little are going to love little. That's you, Simon. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. That's her. The last thing that Jesus says is he turns to that woman and says, Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go 
in peace. And we don't know anything else about her. But I could tell you this, after having that experience with Jesus, my guess is that she walked away a changed, transformed woman. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. And I love this story. It's really, it, it is one of my favorites, one of my go-tos. Do, did you, do you like it? Did you pick up new things in the text? Good. You ever walked into church and, and man, it's a great story that your pastor told, but then you're, you're just curious and you're wondering, like, how am I going to apply that to my life? How are you going to apply this? Sometimes we need help bridging that gap because it's, it's first century that we're learning about, but we live in the 21st century. Like, how are we going to bridge that gap? Can I give you a suggestion whenever you're reading good stories and you're trying to figure out how to apply it? Maybe just ask yourself, who am I in the text? Like, who do I most associate with? But not, not who do I try to be, but just like deep down, who, who am I in the text? We met three people in the story. Who was the first person that we met? Simon. Simon the Pharisee. Jesus had a choice word for Pharisees quite often. He called them hypocrites. People that, it was a term for an actor on a stage, somebody who put on a false face to pretend that there's something that they're not. And that was his word for the Pharisees. And I would imagine in a room this size, we, we might have some Simons. I don't say that in a judgmental tone. I just state it in a realistic tone for you to walk out of here and recognize, am I a Simon? Do I invite Jesus to certain areas of my life, but I hold him at arm's length? I want Jesus at church. I want Jesus when I take communion, but I don't want Jesus when I'm cheating on my taxes or whenever I'm doing some shady stuff at work. I want Jesus whenever I need wholeness and I need forgiveness or if I get a bad diagnosis over here, but I don't want Jesus whenever I'm over here with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or somebody that's not my spouse. I don't want, I don't want to invite him to that area of my life. I don't want to invite him to the area of my life when nobody's looking because I don't want him looking either. I wonder if we have any Simons in here. We cannot segregate our life out like that. We can't have holy moments over here and unholy moments over here that are just ours and nobody's watching. No, because that's hypocritical. It's hypocritical. I understand that we're all sinners. What's hypocritical is whenever we're doing that stuff intentionally and justifying it. Whenever we start thinking that the world's standards are our standards as well, and Jesus is saying, no, they're not. I've called you to something different. He's called the, holy, uh, the Pharisees to be holy, and yet they still hungered for their greed, they still hungered for their self-praise, and they definitely didn't want to have anything to do with people like this. Simon loved little. He's forgiven little. How about you? Like, you just got to ask yourself and just be realistic. Am I Simon? Who's the next person that we meet in the text? Jesus, right? Now, if we're applying this text, we're either going to be Simon the Pharisee, and we're going to have some struggles with inviting Jesus into our life in certain parts of our life, but then holding him at arm's length, or we're going to be like this woman who's dirty, rotten, filthy, and needs to be at the feet of Jesus, right? But, but we're not Jesus in here, correct? Has anybody ever been confused for Jesus? Actually, in this church, I've, I've preached this before. In this church, there actually is one person that has been confused for Jesus from what I understand. Where's Evan at? Where's he at? Poor guy. Your pastor told me that, Eric told me that he actually has people that stop and take selfies with him. Like, man, 
He can't go anywhere. I told him he could never sin in the community. Like, he can't have some big sin ever. It's like, I think I saw Jesus coming out of that bar drunk. <laughs> can't do it, man. Like, you got to live a holy and pure life for the rest of your Like, it's just your death or shave your head and move towns. Like, one of the two. <laughs> but for the rest of us in here, and actually Evan as well, have you ever been confused for Jesus? I'm not talking about your gender. I'm not talking about whether you have a beard or wear sandals. I- I'm talking about the way that you behave. I, I think your workplace should know that you're a Christian and that you follow Christ and that you have integrity. I think the people at your school should know that you're a Christian, not that you go to church and that you're busy on Wednesdays, but that you follow Christ no matter what. People should know this about us, and, and yet I've only been confused for Jesus once. It's only happened one time, and I wish it was a better story, and it has to do with my, my not-so-much-of-a-buddy, Matt. Because after we were running and sometime later in the semester, we get to this section where we're swimming. And I didn't mind that as much. And so we would change, get in the pool, we would do laps, and then we'd play different water sports and stuff. And, and, but Matt hated that even more than running. And so he would get to the locker room a few minutes before all the other students would get there. And he would change because he was embarrassed. And then, and then he would just get a kickboard and he'd just kind of wade over in the corner of the pool. And then about five minutes before the coach blew the whistle, he would get out and he would go change. And then he would just scurry off so that he could just have some privacy. And one day, as he's getting out of the pool to go and change, uh, I noticed two other boys. Uh, one boy named Jimmy was the kind of the ringleader with this and they're kind of looking around and seeing if the coach is watching and they follow him in there and I just had that sinking feeling in my stomach you know what I'm saying like that just didn't seem right and so I get out of the pool and I dry off and by the time I get into that locker room I can still hear Matt crying out for help they had cornered him they had waited till he stripped off his trunks and then they stole it from him and they took his towel so he's completely naked and he's just balled up in a in a corner and one kid's just holding his stuff, his towel, and wet swim trunks and everything. And, and the, other, the other kid, Jimmy's smacking him with a towel, and it punched him and stuff. And they're just, they're just bullying him. And I don't know what to do, so I just start running towards the back of the locker room. And as I'm running, please, if you are in school, do not do this. But as I'm running, I don't, I don't know what comes over me. I just have all of this adrenaline. I'm not a fighter whatsoever, but my fist balls up, and I haul back, and I clock Jimmy right in the crook of his eye and his, and his nose right there, and he falls over the bench and hits the back of his head on a locker. And I look like animal from the Muppets. I have all this adrenaline. I'm just like, uh, 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 and I look at the other kid, and he drops the clothes, and he runs to go tell on me. I'm thinking, what are you going to go tell the coach that you were doing to get me? Like, I'm pretty passive. Like, I... I, I what are you going to do? But he goes to tell. Matt grabs his clothes and he scurries off like he's gone. And so it's just me and this kid that's half knocked out right here. And I'm, I don't know what to do. I just start to cry like a baby. I'm 17 years old and I'm just like, my dad's going to kill me. Like, I don't know what to do. And I did get in a little bit of trouble, but Jimmy got in quite a bit of trouble, and that other kid did. And, uh, and he came back to school the next day and he had some white tape on his nose. And I kind of felt okay with that like you know but Matt walked up to Jimmy because he was gathering his books because he was suspended but was going to keep up with his homework he walks up to him and kind of puffs out his chest like well hello James how are you today how's the nose you know like kind of thing and I'm like Matt he's going to kill you after my junior year my dad had a bad year in landscaping it just could not like afford to put me in that school again and so I went back to the public school I didn't really care I didn't call Matt school wasn't my thing and so I, I just went back, and after the first day of class, Matt calls me. Hey, where were you? What lunch do you have? I saved you a seat here, and he's just jabbering, jabbering, jabbering. I was like, Matt, I'm not coming back. 
I'm over at the public school. I explained a little bit, and he just kept saying, no, no, you have to come back. You have to come back. And then he used this phrase. He goes, you have to come back. You're the only person who was Jesus to me. Matt, I'm pretty certain Jesus never punched anybody. <laughs> but then I had to confess, like, I just, I just ignore you. I'm not a very good friend. And he goes, you're at least better to me than anybody else is. You at least sit with me at lunch. You at least talk to me. I want you to hear me, oh boy. If one punk, self-centered person who's not trying to be Jesus at all could come across as Jesus, what about you? An entire army of people in a community with a great church and good people. What if you were intentionally trying to be Jesus? Do you know why we don't look like Jesus? Maybe because we keep skipping over him in the text. Maybe because we're so worried about how Jesus is interacting with, with us that we forget that we're supposed to be Jesus interacting with other people. That that's what he's called us to. But we get all hung up on being afraid of society and rules and this and that. Stop it and just go be Jesus. It works. People recognize him through you. They recognize him through you. So who are you? Are you Simon? Are you Jesus? Some of you in here can also just relate to that woman. And again, that's not about gender. That's just about where you've been. That woman kind of put everything on display and you know that if somehow they got a video of like your deepest, darkest moments that you don't want anybody to see and they displayed it up here in a, in a montage in church and you saw your sin and your hypocrisy and the, the lewdness and the stuff that you've done and you look around and you think I am not like these other people I don't actually belong here I don't know what I'm doing here you are believing a lie of the evil one you most certainly are and you need to stop because you're not too dirty, you're not too sinful, you're not too any of that stuff to find yourself at the feet of Jesus. Put yourself in a vulnerable position to allow him to love you and just see what he does. Sure, he could reject you, but I promise you he won't. Because he's proven himself time and time and time again, self-included. That when you place yourself at the feet of Jesus, you love much, you're forgiven much. You got a lot of sin? Great. There's a lot of room at the foot of the cross. His blood covers you. Made whole and restored again, and you can walk out of here with dignity. Or you could do like most Christians do on a Sunday morning, and they go, wow, that was a nice story. That was a good sermon. Great worship service. And they walk out unchanged. Don't let your inner Simon overwhelm you going out those doors and becoming Jesus or putting yourself at the feet of Jesus right where you belong. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that there is room at your feet for me, for us. God, as we've spent time at your feet and we know the wholeness and the healing and the love and the forgiveness that could come there, I pray that we go show other people that too. 
bring them to us this week so that we could demonstrate you. In Jesus' name, amen.